0: Greetings from the floor of the 2023 BIO Conference in Boston. Today, Vital Transformation presented our research showing the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act on global biopharma innovation. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health podcast, I'm joined in our studio on the floor of the conference by Nick Shipley, the Executive Vice President of BIO, who moderated our session. Hello, Nick. How are you doing? Hello. Uh, We've been spending the afternoon together, Nick. It has been a good afternoon. It has been a good afternoon. I'm also joined by my colleague, Joe Hamming, Vital Transformations U.S. Business Director and a card-carrying neuroscientist. How are you doing, Joe? I'm
1: doing great, Nick. Great to see you. You guys did a wonderful job on that panel.
0: Thanks. Thank It was, you. It was fun and some great speakers, too. It was fun. <laughs> Great questions too. Good audience, and standing room only as well. It was. The IRA data is really bad, terrible even, <laughs> really. You know, we see a dozen lost therapies a year, huge losses in R&D investment, $6 billion in Massachusetts per year, a gutting of the orphan pathway for oncology. Yet, until yesterday, none of the companies have been saying anything publicly about IRA's true impacts. Why is that? We were having this conversation on the way here. Why, why have the companies not owned up to this? Oh, always
2: with the caveats that uh, you know, every company's got to speak for themselves. But I, d- I do
0: think one of the themes
2: that we we hear about since IRAs, since it passed, and we actually heard a little bit about it uh, today, which is the companies don't want to be gloom and doom about having to make cold, hard, cynical decisions about ending the pursuit of treatments. They, they want to be able to pursue every scientific avenue possible, all the innovation they can under the sun. And this legislation undoubtedly changes that, that idea. Like they, you know, we talked, we talked about on the panel today, there are winners and losers in in terms of the types of therapies, the types of treatments, small molecule versus large molecule. I know we'll, we'll talk more about by definition, you now have to make these binary decisions. And some of them candidly are going to suck. You don't want to tell an entire patient class, Hey, I, I cannot invest in this treatment to seek a cure for you guys. Your instinct on the company side is always to say you want to pursue that science. You always want to keep exploring that thing.
0: This law is going to fundamentally make that probably an impossible equation. Now, Joe, you used to be a policy professional, shall we say, running a policy shop for a top 10 pharmaceutical enterprise. How would you have handled this given the reality of IRA? What, what would have been your marching orders, do you yeah. think?
1: First of all, this is such a dense data package. There's so much that we've uncovered in all of this that it's going to take time for it to work its way through the system. There's a lot to absorb, it's going to take time. And and frankly, <laughs> one of the reasons the companies wouldn't say anything is they haven't fully digested it yet. Yeah, It's only been out a week. We've given a lot of people, not even a week, we've given a lot of people a heads up, uh, people who need to have the heads up. Uh, but they have a lot of uh, chewing through this this dense material to do.
0: But as, but as we were talking about, though, if you think back to J.P. Morgan in January, a lot of our clients and a lot of our friends who are at J.P. Morgan in San Francisco were coming back to us and saying, but, but actually all the CEOs saying, wow, the impact's not that bad. There's been a narrative that's been circulating that IRA isn't that bad. And then well, we'll get into the Merck lawsuit later. But obviously it is. Not great.
1: It's not great, and we heard that today.
0: Yeah, that that small company CEO
1: stood up and said, "Look, I, I just don't see this is going to be a problem for us uh, until you took him through, you know, the iterative process uh, that that these negotiations are going to bring. He may not be in the crosshairs today. He may be in the crosshairs." You know, down the road when things start to uh, cook along.
0: And after the, after our presentation, I pulled him aside and said, "Yeah, you may not be in the crosshairs, but the people who are investing in your company might well, be in the well, crosshairs." That's
1: that's the big you important yeah. issue, and and that was discussed. Well, I think during the, the the panel discussion as well, and that is, it's a chilling of the ecosystem of the biotech environment bigger companies are not necessarily going to be able to make all the investments that they would have right. otherwise. It's a reduction. It's, a, it's carving off some, uh, some of the innovations that could come. So yes, they will continue to do the work, thankfully, but it's, it's what is going to be lost. What are we not going to see, which is the whole was the whole reason behind this project in the first place.
0: So Nick, obviously your members are, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are small, mid-cap biotech firms, emerging Mm -hmm. companies globally. What are they saying about the potential risks here for the access to liquidity, which obviously with the markets going down and with inflation, it's becoming a real issue? We have increasingly heard you know, from our, our, our
2: smaller mid-cap companies on this, that this is an ecosystem challenging problem. You know, these are these are companies that probably very easily could try to hide behind the idea of like, well, we're, we're pre-commercial or we're small, we got one product, it's not very big yet, we won't be on that first round of negotiating targets. And, and that on its face might be a true statement, but they are also equally recognizing immediately, oh, I, I have to raise money out in this innovation ecosystem and that just got damaged in a very serious way exactly i think there 's a, a a tendency particularly amongst uh, legislative staff who you know maybe that, you know, you're, why, why would you be steeped in the sector? You're, you if you're elected today, yesterday, you were, you were a lawyer, you were a real estate agent, you were the sheriff, and now today you're voting to change Medicare reimbursement policy in in a million different ways. So we we shouldn't. I, I don't mean to presuppose that they should know all these ins and outs, but at the end of the day, like just because you're called a startup doesn't mean you literally started that morning. You right, you didn't start yesterday. This is. In biotech, in particular, you you have been at this for ten years, burning R and D capital, and you are still trying to get that first approval at FDA just to get onto market. Uh, so I think they, our, our small and mid cap guys, are acutely aware that they are now dealing with some intense pressures on how they how they raise money, how they get their their product launched. And I, I think we also hear, quite frankly, because some of them have been at this a while, the rules of the road just got changed on them. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, if you were presenting a certain business case to your investor, investors last year, that's, that's kind of out the window now. You, you, there's a very good chance you've got to start over, recast your products, prospects going forward, because they are no longer going to be as rosy and positive as they once were.
1: I'd also like to add uh, something that you and I have been talking about a lot, Duane, lately. The way that this has evolved, and that is the hurdles that are thrown in front of the biopharmaceutical industry, has accelerated greatly over the last few years. When I started looking at these things on the policy world back in the early 2000s, we thought the pressures were large. They didn't really <laughs> measure up as, as, as large challenges compared to today. With that acceleration and with all of the insults against uh, intellectual property protections and, 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 and all the chipping away that's happening, we have no idea how much more toxic the environment could be in a year or in five years to, to, to Nick's point. It's, it, we just don't know how bad it could get because there are so many bad policy prescriptions out there. And they just keep coming back for more yeah, all the time. The hits time. keep
0: the, hitting. The keep The hits keep on coming. To that point, there's a joke I like to tell that a boat is a hole in the water, you throw money, Well, a biotech company is a hole in the backyard, you throw boats. It's an enormously expensive venture. If we look at the impact of the IRA, according to our calculations, with the 30% revenue reductions in the top 10 companies losing assets, we see 6.3 billion in losses in Massachusetts, 8.4 billion in losses in investment in California. Yet the IRA, Getting to your point about bad policy prescriptions, Joe, the IRA has been hugely supported by politicians in California and Massachusetts, which are the global center of biopharma innovation. Nick, why are the politicians so out of step? What's happened? This is
2: one where I'm, I'm going to struggle to give you a, a good answer because I don't have one myself. You know, Massachusetts and California in particular, now California is a really, a really big state, but even if you localize to where the biotech hubs are there, those are home to some of the biggest industry antagonists and it, and it's even even in states that maybe are not as associated with their biotech hubs if you look at Illinois certain parts uh, uh, you know around in those Chicago suburbs have a lot of uh, a lot of investment same same dynamic same thing it's really baffling that they are voting against their their state's economy yeah. I, I don't know as a, a simpler way to put it and I, I pause because I, I again I just don't know the answer I think you can say that there are some macro-political things at play, and that, I'm, I'm, that's 100% true. There, there's no doubt about it. Party politics certainly guide a lot, a lot of how, uh, how different elected officials uh, operate, how they vote. But at the end of the day, you you know we're, we are sitting on the convention floor here in Boston, you cannot walk out into the the seaport area, into Cambridge, into Kendall Square, without tripping over a little stone plaque to some famous scientist who invented some amazing medicine that was transformative. And if you look at the, you know, just the physical investment of the industry in the downtown, it is exactly what so many other states and cities try to recreate. And countries, Nick. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, well that's another thing that you know we're on on the the podcast radio medium here not very visual i guess but if you look around the the convention floor here There are a ton of countries that have booths that are dedicated to the idea of recruiting companies to come to their country and establish their headquarters, their shop, run your trials here, because it is an economic boon. It is a crown jewel for the U.S. economy. So it is very baffling to me that we we take it for granted, if you will. And that applies at the federal level, at the state level, a lot of times. You know, I'll, I'll go you one further. I've done numerous meetings with economic development officers in different states, and they will inevitably, somewhere in that economic development office in the governor's office there will be someone who will passionately and fervently pitch us on how a biotech hub with a VC incubator is going to be a great part of his state's plan they're going to grow everything and do whatever and you then look at the economic policies they support and you're just like i'm i'm confused yeah. How, how do you imagine this working? And
0: I think that is the exact conflict that we see at a national scale with, with uh, IRA. We did a podcast a couple months ago with John Lamatina, for head of R&D of Pfizer, now a well-known author. You know, and John pointed out when Lipitor went off patent, what did he do? Where did he close factories? Did he close factories in the United States? No, he closed factories in France and England because they weren't getting the return on investment. And now, I remember last year, we had a discussion that the French delegation, which is four hundred strong this year, something like it's that. It's very it's very significant, yeah. Yeah. They were saying, look, we want to get our biotech sector back. Yeah. And the problem is I think that people don't understand that the dynamics of the econ- economic situation that once it's gone, it's kind of gone. There has been no no indication that the kind of
2: European countries, the EU writ large, has been able to kind of reverse the trend that started, you know, thirty, forty years ago, with all of that sector, you know, leaving and coming, coming to the U.S. I think you, you and I have talked about it. You mentioned it a little bit on the panel today. Those EU countries used to be the pioneers, the leaders in this space, absolutely. And it all promptly went away as they went over and over and over again on anti-innovation policies and and took them further and further and further. I think you know the U.S. Is doing itself a disservice by kind of doing the exact following the same path, yeah, and not and just not reading a history book. You know, there's got to be somewhere over at one of these small liberal arts schools in Boston. There's got to be someone with a business case study about about this that that can be (laughs) more widely distributed because I I feel like people just don't know and and it's crazy.
1: Well, that's right, and I think what's really important about this once you start dismantling an ecosystem through bad policy, through you know, failing to pay for new products. It doesn't come back quickly. It's a, it's a decades-long decline. It's a decades-long return to something that you're trying to recreate. It just can't happen overnight. So it takes all kinds of ideas and investments and infrastructure and it requires the brain power, the hospitals and the universities. Uh, and, and once you're out of the business, it's just hard to get back in. Here we are in in Boston, uh, tremendous biotechnology hub like San Diego and and San Francisco. Those are really important hubs and those representatives and, and Congress people there, they don't necessarily see how important it is. I live in Madison, Wisconsin and Madison, Wisconsin has a very, very vibrant biotech cluster. And they work very, very hard. The University of Wisconsin is a, is a massive uh, uh, hospital system and generator of, of uh, data, big uh, recipient of NIH and NSF grants. And my representative talks about how important innovation is and how important the biotech cluster is in the Madison metro area, yet consistently votes against the interests of that cluster. Consistently, so so it's not just the big states. It's... No,
2: it, it's not. You hit an exact conundrum. Uh, you cannot go to a campaign rally and find someone who's saying, "You know what? I'm running. on the anti-innovation uh, <laughs> candidate. I'm I'm going to take us back to the Stone Age. We're going to throw out the iPhones. You know, we're going to grow our penicillin on the moldy bread, and, and that's what we're going to do." Because um, <laughs> because that's insane. No no one's no one's doing that. Everyone wants to be pro-innovation. We all recognize the global benefits of you know the the advance in science and how we, we've harnessed that. And I, I think there is a, a very lazy tendency amongst a lot of elected officials of all, of all parties, I, I don't mean this to sound uh, particular to one or the, one or the other, they, they both do this, where they all say they're pro-innovation and then they will t- when you ask them how, they will tell you it's because I support increased funds at NIH. And it is this kind of lazy thinking of attributing all innovation just to this one entity, and so therefore if we threw a little more money at them, that's all just fine. And anyone who's involved in this, will all say nice things about the NIH, has an has a important role, but the amount of money that the private sector puts into R&D dwarfs what's going on at NIH. And the output is that you see in the private sector dwarfs NIH. Fundamentally, you know, we use the word innovation ecosystem that phrase is used very deliberately because it is an ecosystem you know we we think of that more maybe more in like you know kind of natural sciences you know and and biological sciences about protecting an ecosystem it applies here too you can't just sit there and say well i held the nih harmless and i just obliterated everything else and then pretend that everything's going to be fine it's an ecosystem yeah
1: we we love the ecosystem piece because People understand an ecosystem in the natural sense. That yeah. is, uh, the frogs uh, eat the you know the, right. the mosquitoes, and the mosquitoes are fed. You know, they, it's just yeah. The
0: mosquitoes eat me, but uh, <laughs> and, and,
1: but it works. And people understand it, and I think it can help people understand what the biotechnology ecosystem is.
0: Now, to that point about the NIH, certainly the work we've done has shown that there's a substantial contribution to overall research from the NIH. The U.S. would not be where it is without NIH funding. But one of the key points is that a lot of the NIH research now is targeting orphan, genetic-based oncological, as well as genetic-based orphan indications for neurology, neurological disorders, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, et cetera when we started digging into the IRA, we see real tail risks there for the orphan, orphan portfolio, particularly in oncology, but generally for any small orphan indication. This has caught us off guard. Joe, why do oncology products in particular often target late stage cancers as their initial indication? What's been the motivation from that from a business case?
1: A high medical need. Okay, <laughs> number one.
0: Sure. Uh,
1: obviously, uh, it's it's a devastating diagnosis uh, that too many people in America and around the world hear uh, too often. Why do they target metastatic cancers? Because of the need, but also because often these patients uh, have failed other therapies. It's a last resort there's a very good chance that you can actually see a positive clinical endpoint, but it really boils down to the incredible medical need in, in, in those areas. Uh, there are many patients who find out they have metastatic disease when it's On really their first diagnosis. On their first diagnosis. So yeah. it's not a situation where they fail various therapies and then they go with something for metastatic disease. Unfortunately, because of insufficient screenings, different types of cancers that don't present well. That is with, with a, some sort of a, a change in your physiology or a lump. They just, they grow and grow out of control. And this is where the medical need is.
0: So the problem, Nick, from our analysis, and this has been confirmed now through several conversations we've had with clients, trading that orphan revenue for peak sales the IRA doesn't discriminate with the type of revenue. If you're coming in with an orphan indication, you're then sacrificing peak sales either 9 or 13 years later. That's just the way it is. What are your members now saying about the fact that we've really tweaked in a bad way the orphan oncology pathway? And this now has serious disincentives for many of your members.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, most of the members we hear from echo everything you you guys are saying here. This isn't something where where there's particularly mixed Views, if you will, while a generous reading might say we understand the intent that people were going for, they wanted to avoid what was viewed as some egregious abuses of orphan drug incentives in the past. But now you have swung the pendulum so far that you are basically disincentivizing almost all the orphan drug research you might have. And I think that there is some, at least, understanding. In Congress, this is an after the fact understanding I should say that that pendulum has swung too far that they have looked at taking this this kind of myopic view almost with blinders on, but now that it, you know you can just paint this a very clear view of, of how incentives are going to work. You do not have to be a bench scientist or a venture capital a, investor to understand this and see this like you are clearly going to have less orphan drug research, I do think one of the education gaps that the industry now needs to take ownership of and really push to the hill is in this oncology space about how these trials are done, how these drugs are developed. I do not think there's appreciation for this idea that like new... Cancer therapies going through the kind of FDA clinical trial pipeline will be targeting, you know, the latest stage, six of the sick patients, and start walking back from there. You know, from there, I think there's this just this assumption that you go into the FDA and you apply for a lung cancer indication, and that's that 's what it says, and nothing can be further from the truth, and I, I, but I do think the onus is on the industry to make that more clear it 's something we, we, we have not done.
0: and we had two very, very qualified, exceptional investors on our panel today who echoed this one hundred percent that yeah, this is really devastating for yeah. the orphan oncology right. portfolio, just one hundred percent
1: Dwayne, you know, this morning we had that wonderful conversation with our friend uh, Amanda Malakoff from the Rare Disease Company Coalition. The point that Nick made about how this information is going to be used, how it's going to get in the right hands so that we can advocate for continued innovation in the rare disease space, rare oncology space, is really critical, but they have not had this information more than a few days. Yeah. I keep thinking about this, and, you know, we've been steeped in it since Nick asked us to begin looking at this so we've learned all this all along the way and i you have to step back and you have to go wait wait, wait a second i mean m- most people don't even haven't even seen it yet that we all read the good day bio uh piece <laughs> of uh, we spread that around uh as much as we possibly can when we spoke with amanda malikoff she said this is fantastic we need this kind of data. We can amplify this again. She's going to begin doing that, but it's a, it's a process that can only start when they've fully digested the data set, and there's a lot there.
0: Another thing we need to digest maybe is the elephant in the corner, sort of the vortemort of the study. It's the 9 versus 13. We do see an enormous disincentive to the development of small molecules, and obviously we've uncovered several studies, which we presented today, showing that there's an absolute dearth of publicly funded research as well as company research in large molecules in neurology. This has huge, huge implications. Joe, why are neurological disorders primarily been focused in small molecules? Why has this been the case?
1: Well, it's that, it's that thing called the blood-brain barrier, the BBB to the neuroscience community. Uh, this is uh, a protective mechanism uh, for the brain. It does not allow large molecules to pass this barrier protecting the brain. Getting a large molecule into the brain, that is a monoclonal antibody or uh, any, any protein therapy, it needs to be injected directly into the ventricles of the brain or into intrathecal space in, in the spinal column. That, as uh, we heard today, is, adds a tremendous amount of cost tremendous complexity, danger because of potential for infection, uh, inflammation in the brain, which is something that we already see with injectables uh, into, the, in, into the brain. But a small molecule approach in neuroscience has been, this is the way that, that brain disease has generally been treated. The molecules you take orally, pass through into your stomach, get into the bloodstream, and find their way into the brain and they freely flow through this blood brain barrier. And it's a critical type of tool to treat brain disease. This is what we see in. Uh, stroke drugs, uh, neuroprotective uh, drugs, the psychological... Yeah, psychotropic, uh, the, the psychotropic drugs. Psychotropic drugs, antidepressants, blah, 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 blah. That entire class, or I should say that entire uh, group of class of drugs uh, are, are small molecules.
0: So Nick, given the obvious medical need question around small molecules, particularly where we're lacking so many drugs in neurology, Why has 9 and 13 been such a hot potato? Why has it been such a, you know, thou shalt not speak about it? Why has it been such a problem? There is still immense pressure to crank these dials even further. The
2: Inflation Reduction Act, IRA passes and the very next budget cycle the president's budget yeah. comes out with 5 and 5 not, which has now know. become the Tammy Baldwin yeah, bill. senator exactly. baldwin senator baldwin introduces legislation that also peels back the numbers like, i can't remember if she went all the way to 5 and 5 I the do. proposal's 5 the, and 5 they right eight now 5 yeah. and that and that one, it's lower is the bottom line it is it is a very legitimate concern that these companies have. We have not kind of turned the corner on the political environment where we can talk about raising the floor on innovation in a constructive way. So they have a very natural do no harm fear, if you will, that the policymakers are gonna say, hey, you want parity, I'll give you parity. Here's five, here's five, (laughs) walk off into the sunset. And that's obviously a bad outcome for everyone. I think one of the things we see though and just listening to you guys talk about it, the, the neurology example it's 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 just so so telling we mentioned this a little bit on the on the on the panel earlier you know you fundamentally had congress legislating science here. And when Congress legislates, they are reacting to older conditions that, and I don't mean that in the medical sense. I mean like they are responding to past events. Yeah. They are responding and legislating to what they just saw that headline in the New York times last week. Now I want to do something about it. They are operating when they are picking winner, winners and losers scientifically, you know, and in this case, neurology just got, just got called a big fat loser. They are doing that based on a historical view, which in my mind probably goes all the way back to ACA and the biosimilar pathway, when the very simplistic view at the time was small molecule equals easy, large molecule equals hard. And that was the kind of like pervading sense. And I don't think anyone has grappled with the idea that small molecules now have had massive advances in science. They are incredibly complex unto, unto themselves. That doesn't mean the large molecules got simpler. They are still very complex. We have made great advances in allowing us to synthesize, to create a biosimilars program, et cetera. But science moves forward. Complexity has increased. You know, I, I don't think you'd have anyone at the FDA dispute that when they're talking about reviewing small molecules. They're not saying like, hey, my job is so much easier. We've somehow got things, you know, we're doing aspirin and ibuprofen, that's all we're doing right now. It's like, no, we're 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 synthesizing things that take like thirty-six different steps and it's and it's intense and it's it's hard and it's difficult. Again, I'll come back to the joke. Like Congress isn't made up of a bunch of bench scientists, not even made up of a bunch of FDA you know, reviewers. It, it is elected politicians who, that wasn't their job. I, I, yeah. I want to say there's something like 20-some medical doctors in, co- in Congress. In my time watching it closely, I think we've had two actual like, lab scientists, neither of whom are serving now. They're they are, they are both gone. It's not something that comes natural to them but yet it has still fallen to them by choice in some ways to pick and choose some some scientific winners here. And I just think that's put us in this really bad pathway. And it has also, to a certain degree, created... An environment where some of the industry is rightly afraid that further injury will happen to their innovations, and that's again that's work that we got cut out for us to try to educate people and try to make sure they understand that the work that the vital transformation study does is actually a really good balance of showing there's real harm here. That doesn't mean there's not harm in the other space, and in, and in fact, when you look at some of the the graphs, um, again I'm sitting here moving my hand as if there's a, a, vi- a visual here. Well, um, um, uh, we can
0: but, we can describe it to the yeah, audience. Yeah, yeah, you. you, you give me <laughs> me a voiceover, no like a, a Arrested no Development style,
2: uh, narrator voice. He, he was waving his hands yes. Yes. up and, um, and down. But yeah, it, you know, there's real damage on the on the even on the on 13. It's not it's not without uh, oh it's not without harm. Yeah, and, I mean, 13. And that's years, real.
0: We're seeing 4.9 billion dollars on average for every large molecule asset. I yeah, mean, these are huge hits. What's fascinating about this, if you look at the history of California biotech, and you know, and I'm putting air quotes in now, folks, for those of you playing at home, the reality is. Large molecules really started in California, and that sort of Genentech was yeah, one of the yeah. first, okay? The Nobel Prize winner runs a biotech company in San Diego, the last person to win a Nobel Prize in chemistry. I had an interview with Jeff Yunker from Belhara Therapeutics. just had a $2 billion deal. He's a small molecule oncology company in California. There's this resurgence of old-school medicinal chemistry in some of these targets, and we're potentially snuffing it out, Joe. That's
1: the real danger, and, and the IRA turns up the heat uh, in, a, in, a, in a very big way. I think it's really important to think about the innovations that you see in small molecule delivery for several reasons. First of all, nobody would want to be injected with a large molecule drug on a monthly or a weekly or biweekly basis. I think if you ask anyone who needed a therapy for, or for whatever reason... They would much rather have a medicine bottle in their cabinet that they take in the morning or at night or, or, or twice a day that will help them to either cure them or, or will relieve their uh, anxiety or their blood pressure, lower their blood pressure. That's the Holy Grail. It's certainly the way that I would rather do that. The other thing that it does is it means that the cost of goods is much lower, right. Than these more expensive large molecules. Which most
0: of them fall in Medicare Part B in their hospital injected. That,
1: that's right. and there are, there are a growing number that can be injected at home or by a pharmacist or by a loved one. That's good. But it's still much more beneficial for the entire healthcare system to have a drug that is in a pill form, that is taken orally that will go uh, off patent in a, in, a, in a short period of time, too short for, for many companies, but then it becomes a generic and the cost of goods, the ability to uh, go generic and produce the same molecule, the same drug uh, for very cheaply, is a huge benefit to the healthcare system. It's, it's and, and to the patients. And and of course and to the and to the patients.
2: We've probably been talking about this in very cynical, extremely business focused terms here. There are real patient yes. impacts on the on the far side of this. Our friend from Biogen today on the on the on the panel very rightly pointed out the value of the out-of-pocket cap in Medicare, sure. which is a a, a a really good advance and I'll give a hat tip to the patient community who who worked really hard on that. But this is an area where I think the policymakers did miss the miss the mark when really considering the patient experience here. Because, because you are you, right, you do not. If you think about rural care, rural health care access is something that legislators talk about all the time. And you are fundamentally just making that so much harder because you're saying, hey, you patient in a rural community that does not have a ready provider. You got to, you know, you got to truck yourself to wherever the hospital is to get your injection. and, And it's just putting so much more pressure and onus on the patient Versus, and I, and I think this is part of why we've seen such a, a, a renaissance in the in the oral oncolytics, in particular on the small molecule side, because it means you can do those treatments and it's way easier to give patients access to them. You can do mail order. You, you just have so many more options to ensure adherence, ensure good clinical outcomes. This is just not that. They, they, they didn't hit it.
1: With those molecules, there's stability. They don't have to be refrigerated. They can be shipped yep. Uh, yep. all any place. They can sit in your... Uh, In a purse or, you know, in the uh, medicine cabinet for weeks and weeks, the stability is high. There are just so many advantages. And to see that eroded, I think, would be, uh, you know, is is
0: certainly a shame. I'd like to touch on, Nick, something you were saying earlier about uh, a recognition that maybe there's been some overreach here Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. some aspects of the bill. If we we look at the CMS decision that's ongoing with the coverage decision related to the Alzheimer's treatments uh, targeting amyloid plaques, What's interesting is we have a therapy now coming through phase three, and yet it's running headlong into some of the decisions that have been made by CMS. CMS is basically digging in their heels saying, look, we're not going to revise this. You're still going to have to go into a registry. And there's a lot of patient groups saying, hey, this isn't great. What's been interesting... When Chiquita Brooks-Lassure testified last week, she was coming under a lot of heat. Do you think there's starting to be an understanding that maybe things have gone too far, not just within the IRA, but also in other aspects where we've seen some quite large reach out from the administration into areas that they've never normally gone within healthcare?
2: Yeah, I think uh, you know we're really fundamentally talking about CMS injecting itself into the accelerated approval program and pathway, which has been FDA's purview because approval of drugs is a you know something you want FDA to be in charge of. Having CMS in charge of it is fundamentally like having your insurer be in charge of of your drug approval or, or
0: European HTA.
2: Yeah, we've gone to great lengths to make sure that FDA can make their independent evaluations based on science and that's what has been the operating paradigm and it's been very successful CMS injecting itself into this on the first on the Alzheimer's front I think when they first started people were skeptical but they, they were kind of quiet I think there was the assumption that as more products in that therapeutic class came on market that there would be a moment by CMS where they would let them all out of jail, so to speak. You wouldn't keep holding the the products in, in the proverbial black box and not letting anyone do it. You have to do the registry, et cetera, et But it cetera. would appear
0: they're building more gun turrets. Exactly.
2: Instead, <laughs> they're kind of doubling down. And I think where, where you really got members like Representative Eshoo's attention was when Administrator LaSure testified. You know, she was really talking about accelerated approval in a way that which treating it as a lesser approval I mean, yeah. re- and and re- expanding beyond just Alzheimer's She's talking about like they use a lot of what I would just call signal sending language, coded language, you know, traditional approval, full approval, like things that to really try to emphasize what well, we don't consider accelerated approval to be real. We don't consider that to be satisfactory. We're not going to pay for your products. And I think she was signaling in a lot of ways is why she got so much incoming fire after the hearing that CMS is going to treat accelerated approval products differently, maybe not give them full reimbursement.
0: And then I think what you really got to worry about is what does that mean in the commercial market? And what happened today as well with Robert Califf here yes. at the conference, who yes. basically deferred to CMS's position, which caught us by surprise. This has been quite a shock, Joe.
1: I think the problem and I will refer the listeners to this to our accelerated approval work. Yeah, the last study it's year. on our website, yes. Right. Because there's a lot more there that we don't have time to talk about. We've talked about it before. We've yeah. done podcasts on it. But what is crystal clear is that the majority of drugs that are approved via accelerated approval would not come to market. Would not be available yes. to patients if you didn't have it. It's not a. It's not a matter of it's too fast or you know we're not we don't want to pay for this because you know it's not a real approval. A <laughs> real approval is never going to come for the vast majority of those that 's correct th- those products
0: the economics s- don 't work
1: they, they, they don 't or they 're not enough patients yeah. uh, you know it just it takes a long time to accrue uh, in clinical trials so it, it, this isn 't understood. I know that m- many or ma- most members of congress don 't understand how the process works, and if you don 't understand the process and you don 't try to understand it you're going to make decisions, you're going to pass bills that into law that, that are not going to be helpful to patients and, and, and to the ecosystem.
0: Nick's gotta to get to a panel. We would be remiss not to discuss that Merck this morning announced they're taking out a lawsuit against the IRA and the markets dropped 3%, which was pointed out on our panel today that, well, that's sort of caught Wall Street off guard. Again, we've been aware of the risks to the orphan oncology pathway, but obviously now the the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. So Nick, we've got a lawsuit from Merck. We've got increasing understanding of how the IRA creates enormous disincentives, which people may not have been very open-lipped about over the last six months. Where do we end up? in let's say between now and the next election where does all this land what happens between
2: now and the next election i think you're you're going to keep seeing you know democratic lawmakers in particular digging in and defending. like Maybe they will accept some changes. I think that or, the orphan drug stuff we discussed it would, would be an example of an area where perhaps you would accept some level of change. But it is now in their, baked into their political interest to defend this quote-unquote big accomplishment. Merkel will speak for themselves. It's their lawsuit. They don't undertake these things lightly. But I do think it sends a signal that a lot of industry antagonists didn't want to accept, which is like, this is a really big deal. This is not something that is like a throwaway bill that is affecting one product for three days. It it is the industry changing thing and it is really important to focus and understand those impacts, especially if we do not want to do permanent long-term damage to the innovation ecosystem and have our our biotech industry start to look more like the EU version of it, which is kind of hollowed out and shifting away overseas. Because again, as you said, the convention floor here is littered with other countries who are saying, Come to my country. I'll build you a lab. I'll set you up with the whole facility. It is really a good industry, and I, and I will say, like we've also hear from countries that it is a. They now recognize the national security imperative around it. Yes. You know, a lesson learned from from the pandemic, if you will. There are countries that look at us and say, "Hey, we we do not want to be this dependent on the Western countries. We think you guys." kept all the drugs for yourself we want to make sure we are self-sufficient if this ever comes up again and so like there is even more incentive more effort for them to attract these companies to do their work in those other countries and we we just have to wake up to the fact I know that's not truly the question you asked but I, I think It'll be after that next presidential election that we'll be able to have a more fulsome discussion about this. Now, I will close on maybe the slightly more optimistic note, which is, like, in the immediate aftermath of ACA, we, you know, we fought in court. We had a total partisan standstill in Congress. But eventually everyone kind of acknowledged, hey, it wasn't perfect. We did not pass the most perfect, awesome bill on the very first try. Let us come back around and make a fix here, make a fix there. And that includes things that the Republicans did. It's not just like sure. not just the Democrats admitting they, they got a, a minor provision or two wrong. You know, The individual mandate went away entirely. And that actually, I think, was a big signal that to the Democrats like, hey, you can change this bill. Yeah. It wasn't perfect. They called it the fourth leg of the stool or something. And it was like, Turns out we didn't need it at all, so that wasn't necessary. So we probably do need to get through that in this next election to actually turn the corner on it. You get some new members of Congress who aren't wedded to their vote defending this. That'll allow us
0: to have a little bit better conversation. Our analysis of the Inflation Reduction Act is available on vitaltransformation.com. Nicholas, thank you very much for your support, sir. Thank always, you. This okay. has been great. Always great to talk to you. Joe Hamming, always, always a pleasure, sir. Always, always a pleasure, Duane. Thank you very much. And have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.